Today we'll have on Museum of Latin American Art President and CEO Stuart Ashman. I've got to dial him up right during the next music break about the current installation exhibit Cuban artist Roberto Fabelo's Anatomy, which continues for another month. We'll give you all those kinds of details. Then the former New Jersey State Legislator Louis Monzo will talk about his just-released book, Ruthless Ambition, The Rise and Fall of Chris Christie. So, all right, we'll be back after a short break, folks, with Stuart Ashman. Be right back. Si estoy triste, la busco. Well, that is, uh, that's our piece. It's a, a band I heard in Havana at La Floridita. It's a song they, Vale Gala, had they written themselves. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Returning to Ask a Leader is our first guest, Stuart Ashman, a museum executive and cultural ambassador for over 30 years. He was raised in Matanzas, and, and there's a lot of irony when I think of what Matanzas means and where Stuart's family came from in Eastern Europe, but that we say for another day. He was raised there and then, and then in Havana, Cuba, before his family relocated to New York, where he completed his Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of New York in photography and fine art. His additional studies include graduate work at the Rochester Institute of Technology, as well as participation in Getty's Museum Leadership Institute. Stuart Ashman was previously director of the New Mexico Museum of Art, the Museum of Spanish Colonial Art, a posting as secretary of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs, position as expert consultant for the United States Peace Corps, and an assignment as director of Latin American programs at the Richardson Institute for Global Engagement, among others. He comes to us today from Long Beach, from his uh, office right there, in, uh, there on uh, the vaunted arts scene there near the East Village. So, welcome back to the show, Stuart. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Ever since I got a chance to take a look at your media rollout of Roberto Fabello's exhibit, the main attraction or the focus of this uh, particular interview today, which continues through September 28th, tell us, Stuart, about how Roberto Fabello's career encompasses every expression of the visual arts. Well, you know, it's really an incredible uh, exhibit. Uh, Fabello is, you know, Cuba's number one um, among the, the top three uh, known artists in the world. He doesn't have much uh, exposure in the United States. He's never had a museum show. This is his first museum show here at the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach. Uh, and, you know, this is an artist who um, really was born with a pencil in his hand. Exactly. Uh, he never put it down. Can, yeah, he can draw anything. And really, he, he draws... That's how everything that he does starts with drawing. Then he becomes a painter. He paints on every kind of surface you can imagine. Um, we have paintings on canvas. We have paintings on embroidered silk that he bought in Beijing. And we have drawings in the uh, in in pages of a 19th century anatomy book, which he uh, appropriated. And really, that's the uh, that's the theme of the exhibit, and we're calling it Favelo's Anatomy. Right, and we're going to open that up wide when we get to more of the specific about that particular thing. So his so-called graphomanic approach continues. It combines his imagination, 
with his visual intelligence. This we can see in the human anatomy drawings that he makes his own. And all this put together in, we'll, I, I want to hasten to say, because this is going to be about uh, lots of attributes of, of Cuban, the Cuban economy and society, is all of those works from those uh, human anatomy drawings, first of all, they're all displayed. At, you put it all together. None of that work was framed. You've, you presented it in the museum as the, the sheets of paper were literally uh, shipped to you to set up. Yes, well, you know, the... the uh Obviously, you know there's an embargo uh, with Cuba, so there's not much uh, in the way of postal or transportation. There's no UPS service or FedEx or anything like that in Cuba. Um, so anything that you have to ship over here uh, is very costly. Uh, fortunately, art is considered informational material and is exempt from the embargo. Uh, so you can, you know, move it back and forth between the two countries without any repercussions or without any customs charges. So what we did is we, uh, I actually had uh, somebody courier the drawings from uh, Havana to Miami, and then they were shipped here UPS, and then the paintings were all rolled up uh, and put in this gigantic tube, uh, and then somebody uh, flew here from Havana and carried it as excess luggage. And I've saved the tube in my office just because uh, it's amazing to think that uh, a major art exhibition came in one tube. Uh, So then we have um, a firm in uh, Costa Mesa, Mesa Art and Framing, and they were terrific in putting everything together, working with the artist uh, to ensure that we were framing it the way that he prescribed. Um, oh, he did have a hand in that. Good. Yeah, he had some idea of what he wanted done. And when he walked in the gallery, uh, he was so overwhelmed that he just didn't have... I mean, we we were ready to... You know, usually the artist says, no, I don't like that here, or I like that there. He accepted everything the way it had been done. That's phenomenal. He, Credit to uh, you, Stuart. Well, I guess. And Eddie Hayes. Yeah, he was very helpful, too. And Carlos Ortega, our um, curator of collections, who really supervised all of the mounting and framing. Indeed, and it, it, it is remarkable. Um, and then, you, you know, we hired uh, this fellow uh, on contract, a fellow named Thomas Hartman from IQ Magic, which is a design company that does a lot of work for museums in Los Angeles and other places, and he designed the, the gallery space. So, and as you saw, um, you know, we, we made um, two galleries out of one, Exactly. So that we could separate the works on paper from the paintings. And it is it is a bit of a different mood. And let's let, uh, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the world, galleries all over the world, and on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Stuart Ashman, CEO and President of the Museum of Latin American Art, also referred to as MOLA. Uh, and we're talking about the current exhibit, Fabelo's Anatomy, that is there until Septem- through September 28th. And we're talking now specifically about Roberto Fabelo's human anatomy 
graphic work. It's it is graphic in uh, in all senses, and I uh, it's mm-hmm. uncanny what he's done to. Uh, I guess the the pa- he was sent those pages somehow. They landed. I mean, he didn't. He wasn't looking for them, but some, somebody delivered them to him. According to no, that. a friend a friend of his who's a doctor gave him right. the book because he knew you know how obsessed he was with drawings, and you know the book is is actually a very well known uh, French. Yes. Book uh, by an author named Destut, because we have some uh, we have some board members who are former UCLA medical professors, and both of them use the book uh, in, in their the uh, medical studies. Uh, and and you know basically the the book has all these beautiful hand drawn illustrations of maybe you know a kneecap or a shoulder bone or you know the the optic nerve and so he just took those drawings and expanded on them uh converting them into these beautiful women with beaks men and women talking to each other interacting all these uh strange kind of magical realism or surrealistic uh images um and my attraction to him really was that when you knew that you were looking at a, a page from a textbook, right. and then you were looking at the new illustration, and so it looked like you know this was a real thing that was being uh, written about in the textbook. Uh, and that's really what attracted me to it, aside from the fact that they were beautiful drawings. They are. And uh, how a particular portion, I mean, it completely, well, I will say it masks and incorporates and then masks those uh, anatomical components. So what is a part of a, uh, a bone fragment, a, 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 um, a nerve connection becomes a full-on Cuban uh, bird mask over a, a corpulent sort of figure. I mean, it's just really, uh, it's, uh, it's as though it, it, uh, all a great deal of time and examination went into this, but as we understand from Roberto Fabello's whole career, is he he can find that drawing in that mm-hmm. other uh, other characterization, and he turns into something completely different, completely convincing, as you were saying. Yeah, no, it's it's really uh, quite amazing, and you know he's a very uh, humble guy who you know works every day and. His wife is very involved in uh, his career. Uh, she manages all the logistics to give him the space to paint and do his work. And then her sister is actually the their office manager. You know, he has quite an operation because he's got exhibits uh, all over the world. He shows in Asia, uh, in Central America, in South America, in Europe. Uh, he has shows in Berlin regularly. So, um, you know, it's a busy life. That's that's great. I I didn't fully appreciate how broadly he's been exhibited, and so that it's great to hear. Are you aware, Stuart, of the kind of reactions he's getting? Because it, it's a very distinctly Cuban sensibility. Do you know how it's being received? Well, yes. You know, this weekend uh, we had a band here, yes. the Mambo Kings, and there's an older Cuban gentleman who who comes to a lot of our events, and we've had a few conversations, and he said something that was very touching. He said, you know, this, you know, you've changed, he said, you've changed the face of this museum. You're bringing the yes. community in on on a Sunday for an event like this, but what you've done in the galleries, that's the heart of the museum. And so he really um, 
felt a strong connection to the imagery, uh, even though you could say, you know, you know, why is this Cuban? Um, because you know, it doesn't have the. It's not salsa music. Uh, it's it's. Uh, but somehow, the complexity uh, and the thought that's behind it uh, is quite unique. So I was I was very moved, but I think you know people in general have said some great things about uh, the exhibit, the quality of the presentation, uh, and the level of the work. Um, you know, are really an um, an upgrade to a lot of the things that have happened uh, regionally. You know, we've had some great shows at the museum right. during my tenure and before my tenure, but. This is going to go down as one of the great shows. And you're saying that on the heels of the ever-popular Frida Kahlo photos that I talked with Edward Hayes about uh, some a half a year ago. So, it's, And that was a real pull. So that's saying a lot about how uh, this particular exhibit is going. And so what I wanted to, to bring up is what we're talking about, what's uniquely Cuban about this. And there is, and I don't think the, the media event quite... Uh, zeroed in on this, that there, there, everybody, all the reporters were certainly want to ask Roberto Fabello all about the embargo and free speech and all that kind of thing. But let's tilt it to what is uniquely Cuban about this resourceful repurposing of found materials. Tell us about that aspect of Cuban life and Cuban art, Stuart. Well, you know, in terms of the imagery, um, you know, he has um, he has inner tubes. In some of the paintings, right. which are which are characteristic uh, Cuban recreational tools, and also became later the uh, the basis for the rafts that Cubans used to leave the island. Um, so, so they're kind of a unique symbol, and also he has a whole series that is related to the seawall, which is Medical. a very symbolic space in the city of Havana. Yes. You know, for one thing, it's it's a wall that faces the north, Miami, if you will, uh, and you know when you sit there, you look at the horizon, and you can imagine what the other part of the world looks like because there's so much isolation. At the same time. Uh, it's become, well, it's historically been the the sofa of Havana. You know, it's it. You have a cool breeze from the ocean, and it's free, and it becomes a gathering place. And so, on Saturday nights, there are no seats on the seawall; they're all filled up. Three, four uh, deep, I remember, on a Friday night. Yeah. So, in that sense, you know, um, uh, his imagery is is. Uh, is Cuban, uh, and and the other thing you mentioned, you know, um, you know, there were periods in Cuba during what they call the special period in the 90s when the uh, when the Soviet Union pulled out and they had no support. They lost 65 percent of their GDP. Uh, so you know they were they were really uh, in dire straits. So there was no paper. I mean, there wasn't even any toilet paper. So forget about paper for drawing. So somebody like Favelo would have had to, you know, figure out how to draw. He has us actually uh, an installation at the art museum, uh, which is on paper bags, drawings on paper mm -hmm. bags. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so there's some element of that in the fact that he drew on pages of an old book, but right. there's also the fact that he drew on this cloth, albeit it, it's beautiful silk. Uh, embroidered cloth, but 
uh, an artist would have drawn on anything they could, on a wall, on anything they could find. So in that sense, you you could argue that, uh, you know, he was using whatever material was available to him. So I'm going to move in. It's a pretty delicate one. I'm, I'm not probing for the whole uh the nth degree of detail, but uh, speaking of the the Cuban economy, uh, what was also lost on uh, some of the discussion uh, at the opening, it's the the feature of the Cuban currency, the two tiered peso. Where I wanted to know, if, by we, means of explaining that two tiered system, would you tell us about how Roberto Fabello was remunerated for this exhibition? Well, you know, he he doesn't get any money from us. Uh, this is a completely non-commercial enterprise. Uh, the museum had a small amount of money budgeted for the exhibit, and he had his own patron that helped fund some of the shipping and some of the lodging and and even the publication of the catalog. So, you know, th- this is probably a very expensive exhibit, except that we didn't have to spend a lot of money on it. Oh, so... We didn't exchange any uh, money with uh, with Favelo at all. Uh, the so, only thing we did was uh, we we paid for his flight from and his wife's flight from Miami to L.A. and back. Um, that's all we had to do for him. So that means um, there's the the uh, Cuban the the uh, higher the converted Cuban peso, which is a, what is it, a tw- twenty times the value of the the regular old peso correct something like that and so but if if he was sponsored if he's a sort of a a state uh intellectual state creator artist he might then have been paid by the the lo- at the lower so. level i think he's uh, he he works independently uh he didn't get anything from the government either so then the patron uh, may have paid him at a higher level just one. to cl- clarify the yes. the tiered system you know the, there's a there's a moneda nacional which is cuba's official uh, currency, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the Cuban peso. Uh, and then there's this other thing called CUCs, which is the Cuban convertible peso. And what that is really, it's the U.S. dollar converted to another different piece of paper, which enables the Cuban government to put a lodger's tax on visitors. So when you arrive in Cuba with your U.S. dollars, you have to change them for CUCs, and and uh, you get 87 cents on your dollar. So basically what the Cuban government is doing is they're charging you 13 percent uh, for anything that you spend in Cuba. Um, I mean, it's a clever way for them to to uh, receive some income because um, Cuba doesn't really have a tax structure the way we do here. So, you know, if the you go to a tax. hotel here, you know, the, you might be paying one ninety nine for the room, but you end up seeing the bill at two thirty five by the time you're done because there's city lodgers tax, state accommodation tax, federal tax, etc. So they're just doing it by dealing with the with the cash. Now there is some talk about consolidating the two, um, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. Uh, the Cuban peso has very little value. Uh, it's valued at about 25 pesos to the U.S. dollar. So, and it's kind of hard to comprehend how all of that works because a Cuban may make 
you know, 800 pesos a month, and if you try to convert that to the U.S. dollars, it's $30 a month, which is not very much money. Right. But in fact, you can live uh, as a Cuban with Cuban pesos uh, and, you know, buy things at the grocery store and uh, anything that you need with those pesos. Uh, Obviously, if you need a pair of Nikes, you're going to have to buy them with uh, the, the CUCs, and that's going to be something you're going to have to save a lot for. So Cubans rely mostly on remittances from family members and from family members bringing them stuff. Right. And, you know, there's, a, there's over half a million Cubans in the United States. Uh, that's... Um, what percentage of the population is that? Uh, they have 11 million Cubans, so it's 5% of Cubans are outside making U.S. dollars, which then they can funnel to their relatives in Cuba. So, I mean, it, what it does is tilt the higher-paying jobs toward the tourist sector, so uh, it's certainly uh, created a real conundrum for parents running to rear their children in uh, certain intellectual positions, but those are not uh, nearly paying the dividend of the tourist job. So that's, but anyway, that's why I was wondering if uh, Roberto Fabello, I guess with his, the patron that's underwriting uh, his uh, funding is perhaps able to give him uh, pay in that, the higher level, the kooks uh, anyway. So I, Yeah, you know, I don't think he's too worried about finances. You know, he's very successful with sales uh, okay. in Europe and other places. Right. You know, he's, he's very comfortable. Okay. You know, he's equivalent to a successful artist in the United States. All right. Well, I want to give a little a, a passing uh, reference here quickly to there will be on Friday a, a workshop that MOLA is going to put together. Fabello's artistry is going to be put into for other people's practice here uh, Friday night from 7 to 9. And I don't know if there's reservations left, but I'm going to quickly give the number. People can call to see if there's any more spots of the 30 that were there. Originally for the workshop, 562-437-1689. See whether Carmen Vargas can book you a spot on that. And then uh, there's going to be a whole lot more planned for the rest of the run of this uh, exhibit, as we said, going through September 28th. And uh, MOLA.org is the everlasting, ever abundant uh, resource to go to to find out what's going on besides the ones we're mentioning. And that's the, those are the Cuban themes. I just wanted to give you a chance, or I'll just say uh, how uh, embarrassed with riches MOLA is for the rest of this year with Manuel Carrillo, Mi Querido Mexico, going on through November 3rd. And then the, uh, an homage paid to the late Gabriel Garcia Marquez with selections from MOLA's permanent collection and that's going to be running till november 30th so uh everybody's got plans between halloween and thanksgiving to wrap up what is going on and which is sort of overlapping with a lot of other exhibits any favorite amongst those children there at the museum well you know i i uh i think the museum is shining right now so everything uh everything that's going on right now is very exciting we have marcella armas who has an installation in yes. the project room and then we're looking at um estereo segura another cuban artist opening right after the favelo and neo-mexicanism shows close uh that show will open october 15th and uh that's going to be very exciting as well all right and we might do another museum holiday show we've had you on we're having you on right now just before it's not that far from Labor Day, but uh, we may want to go revisit that. I'd like to give everybody a chance to know over the the uh, 25th of December to January 1st kinds of um, what you can do with yourself to make your mind 
thrive. <laughs> and so uh, we'll, we'll, if there's time, willing, and you're uh, available, we can go back uh, to that for the holiday special. Well, I want to be wonderful. Well, it's wonderful having you on. And uh, I say every time I take another pass over Roberto Fabello's work, I get more and more uh, endeared, and I understand. I get it. I mean, at first brush, I thought this is an acquired taste, but as I kept looking, I thought, wow, what a what it is imagination and 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 creativity colliding in a in a one man's body and so Stuart Ashman I want to thank you for your time on Ask a Leader today Well thank you very much thank you for having me Thank you that was Stuart Ashman he was the um, is still the Museum of Latin American Art CEO about the current exhibit Fabel's Anatomy we'll be right back with my next guest Luis Manzo uh, right after this short music break stay tuned Welcome back, everybody, to Ask a Leader. That was uh, Son Son. I heard them also in Havana. They were a delightful uh, ensemble. And it's just a taste of how really outstanding Cuban music is. Live performances are everywhere. It's the most, I think, one of the most competitive genres. So many playing their hearts out. So uh, that was a treat. And now we are going to turn to my next guest, Luis Manza, whose recently published book is entitled... Ruthless Ambition, The Rise and Fall of Chris Christie. Louis Manzo hails from Jersey City. He earned his Bachelor's of Science degree at Jersey City State College in health education. He worked his way up the Jersey City Health Department to become the department's chief, where he, among other undertakings, became an expert on chromium contamination. He was elected county freeholder in Hudson County, a county that we'll hear a little bit about uh, later in the interview. After an unsuccessful bid to fill an open seat in the Jersey City mayoral race, he was later elected to the New Jersey State Assembly, serving from 2003 to 2009. We'll take up today's interview, how he's filled out the rest of his resume. Uh, previous to Ruthless Ambition, Louis Manzo authored God's Earth Also Cries a novel based on the chromium contamination crisis of the 1980s. I think little Aaron Brockovich is sort of ringing in the back of our minds. Lewis comes today from Belmar, New Jersey. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Lewis. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I'm glad to have you. I, I must say it's a, it's a tough read, but a, a read, we've got to do it and uh, get through it, and I'm glad I did. Tell me, tell all of us, Lou, what was the motivation behind setting aside upward of five years to peel off scab after scab to write this book about the current governor of New Jersey? Well, I wanted to alert people to what is going on in the uh, Justice Department. You know, it's not just uh, Christie. You know, he's the happens to be the the center of my book, but uh, the behavior um, that that he uh, incorporated through a justice system, through a, through being a prosecutor, is really rampant throughout um, the American justice system today. Yeah, and so it is. From his U.S. attorney days up to uh, to now, Chris Christie's targets. What do they have in common? Well, mainly they were all Democrats, and mainly they were all Democrats in the areas of New Jersey who could effectuate uh, elections, be very effective in outcomes of elections in statewide races. Um, It was no secret, uh, and it was revealed that Christie had harbored running for governor as early as uh, 2005 when he started haranguing um, 
then Governor James McGreevy, uh, up until the time that McGreevy resigned. So I'm thinking sometimes state news doesn't travel very far out of the state, and uh, but somehow there the the these kinds of uh, developments were making it out. They were hitting national news. So. Lots of people, I think, when they recall, it's nine, ten so years ago, we can recall some of these things going on. And, it, and it, it's got the, uh, the Chris Christie smudge marks uh, on, on each of these uh, episodes, I have to, I'm just have to say. So uh, then uh, he's looking after, it was your Hudson County, Monmouth County, all these where for there's a, a get out the vote effort, there's uh, people that are delivering on local uh, concerns and that kind of thing, and that so it, there was a disenfranchisement in the process. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. So, um, I, I guess, um, what, why do you think, Lou, how, how come Chris Christie never has been indicted? Uh, mainly because the Justice Department protects their own, and he was insulated having been a U.S. attorney. And uh, the book points out instance after instance, for example, uh, uh, 80, uh, I believe it was 48% of all prosecutions uh, where uh, cases of which are, uh, are rife with misconduct, out of those, only 2% are um, actually brought to fruition where an injustice is, is taken seriously by um, an overseeing um, uh, uh, inspector general and actually result in a remedy. But in, even in those instances, it's very rare uh, for a prosecutor uh, to be punished, and they insulate themselves, especially at the federal level. And Chris Christie, even for his latest antics with its bridge rate, will never be touched. Well, that's what well, we're going to get to. That we're going to work our way first at, with his U.S. attorney position there. And some people can recall that there were a number of U.S. attorneys that were were removed from office because they weren't delivering. But the, it was the inverse with Chris Christie. That's exactly right. He he was on 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 one of those lists at the time of the new uh, the uh, the scandal involving the uh, U.S. attorneys nationwide, and uh, within within months of him learning that he was on that list, he suddenly brought forth a uh, a very public investigation that he made public uh, concerning uh, then Congressman Robert Menendez, who was seeking the uh, vacated U.S. Senate seat. Uh, in New Jersey, and um, it was the the inquiry was brought 60 days before the election, and almost cost uh, Menendez the election. After the election, uh, nothing ever uh, was substantiated about the allegations that were tossed around. Um, I, I would note, and, and your readers should note, that during that whole investigation of, of all these U.S. attorneys nationwide, nationwide, the House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary issued a report, and one of the statements in the report says, the Justice Department has been derelict in failing to address the issue of political prosecutions and reassuring the American people that federal law enforcement is impartial and fair. And, Claudia, that that still exists today right and it's it's always been about chris christie's timing too it's uh, as you mentioned it was just just leading up to robert roberto Men, robert mendez's uh, menendez's uh, election bid it's all it's always about the timing where uh, and we'll and i'll talk about that asymmetry in just a little bit so um this uh 
we can how can we uh, recognize well, well we'll get to the general uh, corruption issue as we want we want to hook into the the lead up to all the elections going on this year but um in i i guess one of my my sorts of own sorts of explanations for how this is working for him is in the court of public opinion it could be easily explained in the asymmetry of the public relations sort of campaign it's for every complicated political scheme that the media had to then or now put out there, U.S. Attorney General, New, Go- New Jersey Governor, presidential hopeful Chris Christie always had a much shorter soundbite. That, that's correct. That's correct. But he was always managing to to get into his target, the um, uh, uh, the, the 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 person he needed to move out of position for him to advance. So, uh, you know, he, he, he was really uh, the, uh, a very clever person, if you will. And uh, when, you, when you look at all the stuff he did, put back to back to back to back to back, as the book does, and not over a span of, you know, time as, as, as people look at it today, but actually condensed, you find out that uh, the, the behavior was abhorrent. And so... As I was saying earlier, that we recognize systematically, um, we want to we want to understand how this all works. And as you, the Star Ledger is sort of like the Star Media uh, sort of character in your your book, you're using their documentation a great deal. So uh, I want to, um, you know, uh, put out there it's this you've got you've, it's so well documented that it's you've you've made a really uh, a pretty pretty darn tight case here. But the state new page. This was the, st- the Star-Ledger, the newspaper covering this. What was happening at the water coolers around the state, if you were privy to that? Uh, people co- couldn't believe uh, that, that this had happened. As a matter of fact, uh, the Senate, when this went down, you know, this thing that, that actually um, he, he put together, Bid Victory, which, which altered the governor's election in 2009 and led to him winning in political scientists and columnists all you know, attributed um, that, that to that, uh, you know, that election to his thing. People couldn't believe in uh, a U.S. Senator, Frank Lautenberg, right. actually stated that um, he was astonished that the U.S. a U.S. attorney's office would go so far as to tie political uh, agendas into law enforcement actions. He made that statement. In addition, three people from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark came forward as whistleblowers to the New York Times and basically said that the people who were arrested in this bid rig three uh, a sting which led to Christie's election were basically ordered. Uh, the arrests were ordered basically to help Christie out in the election, and that and that came from the mouth they said of the first assistant U.S. Attorney at the time, Michelle Brown, who wound up. Uh, getting a job in Christie's administration, and who at the time had a uh, outstanding forty million dollar, a uh, forty thousand dollar loan right. to Christie, which, which was... she kept uh, secret and never disclosed, as both of them were uh, required to do on uh, disclosure forms. So that's the asymmetry. It's a complicated kind of, uh, we'll say, behind the scenes collusion, a Hatch Act violation of the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office in New Jersey orchestrating setting up all the pins for a campaign while out of the out the other corner of Chris Christie's mouth are anti-corruption planks in his platform in his campaign exactly 
So irony, uh, uh, irony. So those of you, anybody who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. My guest in this portion is n- former New Jersey State Legislator Assemblyman Louis Manzo, and he's talking about his recently re- released book, Ruthless Ambition, The Rise and Fall of Chris Christie. And folks, we're, we're going to get to it, how this, this sort of universal issue of, of corruption, people in pretty darn high, high places, how, how uh, it comes back locally to all of us, especially when we have the runs up to elections. Well, um, you were involved, you mentioned the, um, the Bid Rig 3, and that was, uh, in, in essence, an effort for Chris Christie to bring, it was a way for him to, to lead up to and create a sort of a, a vacuum of political popularity and discredit the incumbent uh, Governor Corzine so that Chris Christie could come in on an anti-corruption bid. And then, uh, and you were in, you were wrapped up in that uh, bid rigging sting yourself. That, How, what were that's you, correct. What were you indicted for, Lou? They indicted me for uh, uh, the, uh, violating the Hobbs Act, uh, the, the federal extortion statute. Basically, they said I was shaking down their uh, confidential informant uh, for uh, for a development deal, and that I took uh, campaign contributions. And it took me five years uh, to clear my name. Uh, a host of judges threw every charge that prosecutors subsequently uh, brought in this case to uh, attempt to cover their bases, and um, the, the the results were uh, that it, it destroyed, you know, basically destroyed my life, my uh, my business, uh, my life savings, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's taking me, uh, you know, now to rebuild my name, uh, just just trying to get out there. It's not the what happens after the indictment; it's the indictment that does the damage. It's a lot to uh, put Humpty Dumpty's, the 44 Humpty Dumpty back together again. And you, but everyone had a different sort of an outcome. A lot of people decided they had to plea out of this because they, they wanted to cut the whole right. thing short. Claudia, you hit on something, and I pointed out in the book. Prosecutors, and this is going to astonish probably your listeners, prosecutors know this going in, and, and, and this is documented. In federal cases, in federal prosecutions brought by prosecutors, when an indictment is brought, Ninety-seven percent of the time, they wind up uh, never going to trial and ending up in a plea deal. So, a prosecutor knowing that going in has the the deck stacked in his favor, knowing that even if I brought a spurious charge, the odds are in my favor that the the person, because he there are to to withstand a federal prosecution financially, uh, health-wise, and and mentally, what it does to you is, is enormous, and most of the the uh, the people uh, pled, pled, a uh, plead. In in bid rig three, there were people pleading guilty to charges that they could never be found guilty of, because uh, the, the the court said that the charges they brought against me were specious and they they couldn't be brought. They weren't constitutionally valid. Yet other people prior to that had pled to them, and uh, unfortunately wound up, you know, uh, living with, with with their their poor decisions. Yeah, there's there's so much irony wrapped in this, and so and a lot of the testimony was a contrived the testimony of other of co indictees there that you were you had to challenge the veracity of the characterization of the US attorney's office uh, of uh, how they characterized what the uh, others uh, indicted that, that that was yes and that that was the hardest thing because they can twist things and and people put more weight in what they say than in what your defense says right <laughs> right the bigger thicker suits there so, yes yes 
Well, um, so you lost, I mean, you, you lost everything. I mean, you're, you're, you're living in a different house than you did six years ago. Yes, so I every, am. Yes. Every, so it's all, it's all, it's all changed. Well, um, so I, I tell us then, um, whether Chris Christie's craft at, uh, avoiding arrest or avoiding indictment, will that continue through this, and this is a long answer. I want you to take all the time you need here on Community Radio. Tell us how you think that uh, this craft will continue through his presidential bid uh, leading up to the t- 2016 election. Well, I, I think, you know, the facts are out there, uh, the, you know, that of what he's done. It's, it's a matter of whether anybody media-wise, anybody um, um, even in, in his own party who vets him, uh, wants to say this is a, a candidate we want to support. Um, as far as him being um, held accountable for his, uh, you know, basically corrupt actions, which we document in the in the book, uh, is another thing. As I said, we, you know, our book documents that there's a pattern that the U.S. attorneys are, are can walk through the rain, raindrops. Nothing will ever befall them, even when their uh, actions are atrocious. And even in that U.S. attorney scandal that, that the Justice Department, um, you know, uh, the upheaval that happened several years ago, that was all whitewashed. Nothing ever came out of that other than, you know, the few stories um, that, that surfaced, and, and people walked away with basically a, a slap on the wrist. I, and so what the problem is, it's each of these cases are very complicated for uh, to be explained, but it that, all gets wiped out. You, 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 Christ- you made a great point, and, and the, 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 the prime example, going back to Christie on this, is that people want to hang him for this Bridgegate incident because basically he used his office to cause a traffic jam. The folks understand what a traffic jam is. It, it, it's not that complicated, but all these other intricate uh, um, machinations um, that he used to uh, to 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 put his career, uh, you know, uh, at, uh, ever at an advance, uh, aren't understood, and, and that's why there's the lackluster reporting, and uh, and people tend to, you know, to poo-poo it. Well, and I I think for the general public, this is for the community radio sort of coverage, and on to, for sort of the the national arena is that Chris Christie's worked that public that community meeting. Uh, like nobody else, and he's thinning out too. That that uh, clamp there has uh, helped him lose a lot of weight. Which he he learned from Barbara Walters. What you put in the book? She she's yes, the first one listen, to say he he is the best spinner on on any subject matter, uh, and and best politician as far as presenting an opinion and rebounding since Bill Clinton. Well, and I want to say, folks, Lou Manza opens his entire book with the foreword with a quote from Chris Christie. Beginning of the end, it's called, this is Chris Christie's quote. I just can't resist, Lou. Listen, I'm a trained lawyer. You know what that means? I could make up an answer at any time that sounds convincing. And he said <laughs> that in one of his town hall meetings uh, March of this year. Yeah. So and that was after the, as the Bridgegate thing is being played out, he says that. I mean, why he says it, I don't know. But I, I think, you know, and I tend to mention this in my part of the book where I get to expound on it. I think there's a bit of a sociopathic um uh behaviorism uh, in 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 Christie um you know that that he just you know ma- makes stuff up sometimes and he winds up believing believing his own spin and and he can even spin what his mother told him 
Yes, yes, he uses his mother, uh, you know, as as insulation, if you will, when he goes to hard times, and he soft, he knows how to soften up a crowd, um, hit their emotional buttons, and 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 come out as, as the favorite. He, uh, I'd make a, a comparison. He's now out. You know, he's demonized, for example, in our state, he's demonized teachers and the education system. Claudia, you'd be surprised. New Jersey is the number one, uh, I'm talking for, for, uh, for, for uh, you know, not, not colleges, but for, for high school and, and grammar education. New Jersey is number one in the nation. He has people in New Jersey. He had people in New Jersey believing that we, we are we are the worst in education. Uh, that that teachers are to be demonized mainly because the teachers union, uh, you know, uh, was his biggest opponent in, and helped uh, his opponent in the gubernatorial election so much that he wanted to get back at them. And, and what he does is he masters this thing of making. Uh, the public feel that uh, his enemies are their enemies, demonizes them, and then advances legislation to hurt these people, and uh, and, and 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 puts a, such such veracity in it that the public demands these things be done, and they put other legislators in a position of having to support them. Okay, and the and the, unfortunately, as you're wrapping up your book, though, the Democrats turned over a bit and were uh, emasculated in their reaction so there there wasn't uh, there, the, any symmetry that might have happened uh, in that particular run-up and the re-election campaign for Chris Christie that was also us but let's as we close uh, and this interview and as you close your book you put the onus on the public to do due diligence in participating in the democratic process so how to handle local to national questions of corruption going into uh, November of this year. The political campaign financing has become darker and darker with Citizens United and the McCutcheon rulings from the Supreme Court. It makes the voters and the media's job a bit tougher. Wouldn't you agree, Lou? I do agree, and I'm a stickler on one thing. Yeah. We have to get the, the most important thing in campaign finance is not limits on amounts, but disclosure. And, and when I mean disclosure, I mean someone shouldn't be able to, because they can't give directly to a candidate, be able to offload that money to a PAC that then sticks it into his campaign. I'm saying that all contributions, even to PACs, have to be documented so people know who is giving. That's the most important. If the person wants to give millions of dollars, the public's going to get that, that they're trying to buy influence, Okay. The important thing is when you hide the disclosure, and that's what what the frightening thing at all levels of government is done, is that we don't have in place proper uh, election law uh, campaign finance rules that prevent the lack of disclosure. And, okay. and that's the real tickler here, and that's what hurts us. Well, watch for the, uh, t- it's a template for all of the other states, clean campaign. It's a uh, Proposition 52 still being considered by the governor to uh, be put on the ballot. So it's not, we're not quite there yet. That's one way one state is, is trying to advance uh, cleaning up this kind of financial <clears throat> shenanigans. So, yeah. uh, well, I, Lou Manza, I really want to thank you for your time. Thanks for this read. I think you sort people have to kind of, uh, I don't know, they have to drink a lot of water. I think they have to shower after uh, lot, reading long passages of this book. But it's, I think, an important understanding to get past the, the sort of media finesse that the incumbent governor in New Jersey has managed. And we can project that 
uh, handling on to other campaigns, local, and I mean, watch what's going on in the city of Irvine. Maybe Lev Anderson is going to be covering that uh, when he gets his show on public affairs show. So, so Lou Manza, thank you so much for going to all the effort to document this as you've done so so well, and and thanks for the time on the radio show today. Thank you very much, Claudia. And again, thank you for having me. All righty, take care. Well, I wanted to then thank everybody for listening. That's all the time we've got on Ask a Leader today. Next week, I'm bringing on a number of scientists and practitioners who will be participating in this year's annual Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference put on by UCI and the Alzheimer's Association to be held September 12th. So we want to give you lots of time here to plan ahead for to, to schedule a you know, conference appearance there. All the details on that conference when we convene here next week. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>